You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. As we went in, I saw straight ahead of me the, um, what I thought was a curtain. I realized then it was a, a human pelt. It was the skin minus the head. A full skin just hanging from the, from the top of the door frame. Looked past it and uh, saw a torso on the ground without a head and without any genitalia. Everybody drinking blood, everybody eating brains. Some monster party. Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones. Some monster party. Thank you very much for listening to episode two of Where is the Line? It's episode two. You know what that means? Tell me, Kevin. There's an episode one. (laughs) (laughs) That means we're officially podcasters now. Ooh, I can put it on my resume. Uh Uh-huh, absolutely. (laughs) I'm Kevin, and with me today, and hopefully for a long time to come, is my friend Jamie. Say something disturbing, Jamie. Speckled hen. Speckled hen. (laughs) 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 If you manage to listen to this entire episode... That phrase will make sense later. (laughs) (laughs) Your eyebrows are pretty impressive. Oh, are they? They can can do some crazy stuff, yeah. I've heard that before, but I don't know what they're doing because I can't see them. Yeah, well. All right, are you ready to get into this episode? Let's do it. Let's do it. In 2001, a 45-year-old woman named Catherine Mary Knight became the first female in Australia to ever be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. On February 29, 2000, Catherine murdered her husband, John Price, by stabbing him at least 37 times. And it's what she did with Price's body, though, that makes her story gruesome. Once her husband was dead, she expertly skinned his body in such a way that she managed to create an almost complete one-piece pelt of his skin. So you can think of this like a wetsuit. She then severed the skinless body's head, sliced and cooked several steaks from his remains with the intent of feeding John Price's flesh to his own children. Wow, right? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) There are no words. I think before we get into this, really, we need to talk about Catherine Price's appearance. Because throughout this story, there's a lot of violence that she participates in and a lot of sex that she participates in. And she does not look the type at all. What's the type, Kevin? Not a high school vice principal. Okay. (laughs) I would go more with librarian. Librarian? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, Catherine Knight uh, has curly red hair, pretty thick glasses, very common and maybe even subdued looking. In any case, it can be difficult to look at these photos of Catherine Knight and reconcile them with the violent, hypersexual hellcat that we're about to be describing but before we get into all of that, though, let's, let's take a minute to look at her upbringing. So I don't think we're going to spend too much time talking about Catherine Knight's childhood, um, but probably suffice it to say, 
It was not great. She and her twin sister, Joy, grew up in an Australian town called Moore in New South Wales. Catherine had seven siblings, including that twin sister of hers, and they all lived in this house together. Her parents uh, spent a lot of time physically attacking each other. Uh, And a lot of this violence had to do with sex. Catherine's father was uh, regularly drunk, and he also had an extremely strong libido. And Catherine's mother, though, didn't care for sex. Really, it didn't seem like at all. So they would fight about this a lot. Um, And Catherine's mother, Barbara, apparently she could hold her own. She wasn't afraid to throw a punch, but... Typically, uh, she relented or got knocked out cold, and uh, Catherine's dad would end up having sex with her one way or the other anyway. Yeah, she seems pretty resigned to that. Yeah. In all of the the interviews with Mm -hmm. her. Catherine's parents apparently were just uh, constantly covered in bruises. One of them had a black eye at all times. It also seems like they were not especially interested in keeping any of this violent or sexual behavior uh, out of the sight of their children. And in addition to doing all of this in front of their kids, Barbara, Catherine's mom, would actually talk to the kids about the, the intimate details of their parents' sex life. I can't imagine that. So of these eight children living in this house, Catherine and her twin, Joy, were the only girls. So you've got six boys and these two twin girls. Catherine claimed, and this was later corroborated by other members of her family, that uh, two of these brothers would molest her. And it seems very likely uh, that this abuse extended out to her twin sister, Joy, as well. So being regularly exposed to this uh, sexual and violent atmosphere, it's really not much of a surprise that these kids were troublemakers. Pretty much all of them got in trouble, but we're talking about Catherine, so we're going to focus on her. Uh, Her and her twin sister, Joy, were known in school for their explosive tempers. They got in a lot of fights, and the worst of which were apparently when they would fight each other. Which is great, but then also... They became the sisterly unit when someone else, I mean, they would drop whatever argument they were, they were having to get into fisticuffs together against yeah, they were like everyone a, else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they fought each other all the time. They fought other kids all the time. But they also worked as a kind of a tag team. Right. Too. So if you messed with Joy, you were messing with Catherine. If you messed with Catherine, you were also messing with Joy. This giant family eventually moved to a nearby town called Aberdeen. And that's where Catherine would end up spending the majority of her life. Uh, Catherine's reputation in Aberdeen really wasn't much changed from when she was in Moore. She was known as a bully. She continued to regularly get into a lot of fights. She eventually dropped out of school when she was around 15 years old. And at this time, when she was 15, uh, she was still not really able to read and write. So she was illiterate when she was 15. Uh, By the time she was 16... She was working in the local slaughterhouse, and she loved this job. Her dream job. This was her dream job. I mean, I can imagine doing that job if I had to, but I cannot imagine considering my job at the local slaughterhouse 
a dream job. Well, but her dad worked there, right? And yeah, I mean, her it's the family. Worked there. It's I mean, family it's kind of like family business, but it's also, I think, the town business. I mean, it's not just her family that was there, I and mean, this was kind of the lifeblood of the town economically. Around this area in Australia, New South Wales, Aberdeen, and more, uh, the the major industries apparently are these slaughterhouses and also coal mines right. in the area. So it seems like most of the people that get involved in the story are either coal miners or slaughterhouse workers. Right. I mean, these are really working class people. Yeah. And uh, when Catherine first started working there, her job involved cutting up animal carcasses and cleaning all of the blood and leftover viscera off of these carcasses. And as great as this job was for her, as much as she loved it, the fun hit a new level when she got promoted to boner. <laughs> and a, a boner. <laughs> <That's> so juvenile. <laughs> I know. I know. I laugh every time I see it. I mean, they should name it something else. I don't know, though. It, it, it makes sense. Do you want it to be a deboner? I think that would be better. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Just, you know, grab a thesaurus or something. <laughs> I can't think off the top of my head what a different word for bone is, but if I was going to designate it as a job title, I'd find something other than boner. Osteospecialist. Osteospecialist. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I like osteospecialist. Um, so a boner is exactly what it sounds like. She would receive the recently killed and skinned carcasses of these animals and cut the bones out of the meat. And by all accounts... She was very gifted at this job. It's, it, it's like this was her calling in life. She was a boner idiot savant. And as part of this job, they gave her her own set of uh, boning knives, which she became obsessed with. She took excellent care of them. She just loved having them in her hands. She didn't let anybody else touch them. Uh, they were hers and hers only. And this relationship that she has with these knives, I've been thinking about this. They said that she had a doll that she really liked when she was a kid that she would carry around everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the way they describe her relationship with these knives that she got from the slaughterhouse reminds me of that. Like a little girl carrying around her favorite doll, combing its hair all the time. This is mine. You can't touch it. But she's a young adult carrying around a set of knives. Yeah, but she's a young adult because they're carrying around uh, Imagine if only the public school system hadn't let her fall through the cracks. I know. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> she could have been a, a heart surgeon or a brain surgeon. I feel like, and as we move through this story, if anybody listens to this, I feel like they might feel like th the same way. It seems like a lot of people in Aberdeen fell through the cracks in the educational system. Man, we're about to piss off all of New South Wales with this podcast. Yeah, and Sitting in judgment from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And these are, yeah. <laughs> uh, those uppity Alabama folks always looking down on New South Wales, Australia. <laughs> I will say for the people of Aberdeen and the surrounding area, they were apparently not to be fucked with, like... I know we're fucking with them, but uh, there's no <laughs> way. I mean, to their face. I, I, I don't think I ever want to I don't think the, the, two, the two of us would not do well in a Aberdeen, fight. <laughs> Australia. And, in a pub uh, fight? No. I think. No. I don't think we would be 
leaving New South Wales Mm-mm. in one piece. While we didn't spend a lot of time talking about her childhood, we are going to spend some time talking about the three major relationships that she had leading up to her marriage to John Price, who she eventually murdered. And the reason for that is that Catherine's behavior during these relationships is just absolutely insane. She is somehow at once extraordinarily manipulative and also extremely violent and just completely out of control. The things that she does over this time period just sound completely made up. It's as if the script for her adult life was some kind of joint collaboration between the Coen brothers and Quentin Tarantino. The legal system and the mental health system in the U.S. have their problems, to say the least. And I have essentially no understanding of the state of these systems in rural Australia where all of the story takes place. But I have a very hard time believing that there are too many other places in the developed world where Catherine Knight would not have been off the streets in jail or permanently in a mental institution long before she she managed to kill, skin, and cook somebody. Um, so while Catherine is working at the slaughterhouse, she meets a man named David Kellett. A couple of years after working there, she's 18, and they end up getting married. Kellett is a little smaller than Catherine. Uh, actually, he's a lot smaller than Catherine. He's several inches shorter than she is. And Kellett's, uh, David Kellett's a little bit baby-faced. And from the pictures that I've seen of him, he's not a bad-looking guy. No. Pretty good-looking guy. Uh, but apparently, despite being a little short and baby-faced, he was a pretty rough personality. He drank a lot. He was actually drunk on the day that they got married. Can't blame him. And he was known to get... Uh, into bar fights pretty regularly, too. And while he and Catherine were dating, Catherine would usually back him up in these bar fights. Um, she was never seemed to be disinclined to throw a punch. Kellett felt like he knew what he was getting into. He, he was kind of a rough personality. So was she. Uh, he's wild. She's wild. They're having great fun. Uh, they're having a lot of raunchy sex, apparently. This is something that comes up again and again. Catherine Knight is wonderful in bed. <laughs> it, it comes up more than I'm comfortable with. Everybody that has slept with Catherine Knight says that she is just the bee's knees. I don't think they use that term. <laughs> no, they don't. No, I don't think bee's knees is a, a popular term in Aberdeen, Australia. Um, they do look like they're having fun in these videos from yeah, the 70s. Yeah, we've seen home videos yeah. of her and Kellett together, and they do look like they're having they a great like time. They look like teenagers in love. Couple. Yeah. And because we've seen this, we know that they had a video camera. And there's no way with the extreme libido that Catherine had that they did not film some of the sex. Which makes me really wish that one of Catherine Knight's sex tapes would have leaked. I'd love to see that. Just so I could know what it is that she's doing. <laughs> you know? Because as we move along in the story, you're going to find out that she is really mean to these guys. And they keep coming back to her. And the primary reason that they say they're doing this is because she's great in bed. I just want to know what it is that she was doing. So anyway, this seemed like a good match to Kellett. On their wedding night, though, David Kellett finds out Catherine 
it might be even a little too unstable for him. On their wedding night, as most newlyweds do, they had sex. Then they had sex again. And then they had sex one more time. And David Kellett, very understandably, at that point falls asleep. Which seems reasonable to me. <laughs> uh, but it did not seem at all reasonable to Catherine Knight. Uh, she apparently, had high expectations of this wedding night. Yes. Three times. No. Not enough. In fact, uh, she was so upset by the fact that they only had sex three times that uh, Kellett wakes up in the middle of the night with Catherine's hands around his neck. She's strangling Kellett and screaming at him, my parents fucked five times on their wedding night. I guess that shows how much of an influence her parents' relationship had on her. Yeah. Yeah, and this goes back to, uh, you know, her parents, her mother, particularly, oversharing about her sex life. But I don't know. I mean, that how many historically, people... though, isn't that when you get, you know, the, the really personal sex talk? You know, you're about to get married, you're young, and someone sits you down and says, hey, I mean, this whole idea that, you know, you're a virgin and you have no idea what's going this on. Is I mean, granted, this is the 70s, tonight. so I'm sure she knew what she was in for, but... Um, and if you're Barbara, you set her down and say, what you can expect on your wedding night. He's going to hit you in the head with a frying times. pan. <laughs> and then you're going to have sex five times. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Catherine Knight's wedding night was ruined because damned David did not have sex with her two additional times. He had stamina problems. So Catherine doesn't really calm down ever from this point. Over the course of their marriage... Catherine is breaking things around the house. She's having regular tantrums and just being generally volatile and violent. Uh, she even once tried to stab David Kellett with a broken beer bottle, but he managed to get it away from her. And eventually the couple has a little girl. And shortly thereafter, Kellett leaves Catherine for another woman who he's actually been seeing behind her back for a while prior to this. Right. I mean, he skipped town. He ran off to Queensland, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, so she is at home with a baby with no support. And um, when baby Melissa is about two months old, um, she's walking down the streets of Aberdeen with a, a baby in a stroller, and she's shaking the stroller violently. Yeah, apparently just slinging the stroller slinging it back and left forth. and right. And, you know, this raises some concern. So she is it's eventually... Probably just a broken wheel on the stroller. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been easily fixed. Um, but she ended up spending a couple of weeks in the psych ward at nearby St. Elmo's Hospital. And then, uh, you know, after a diagnosis of postpartum depression, they release her so she can go back home and be a mom. Yeah, and clearly... Um Whatever treatment they gave her worked because when she got home, <laughs> she put the baby on some railroad tracks. The train track uh, incident. Yeah, hoping uh. to let it get run over by a train. But fortunately, somebody came along and picked the baby up before it got ran over. And Catherine gets put back into St. Elmo's Psychiatric Hospital and checks her own self out the same day. Within 24 hours. Within 24 Within hours. Within 24 yeah. hours. She's just, even with that history, is allowed to leave the same hospital 
after putting her baby on the train tracks. And they, she tries to kill her own baby, and they let her out of the hospital. All right. I definitely would consider this attempted murder, maybe manslaughter. It's just, it's insane to me that this woman was allowed to check herself out with this history and go back and have that child in her custody. What was going on in the 70s in Aberdeen? Granted, no one knew as much about postpartum depression and treatment as folks do today. But still, that just boggles the mind that someone would just allow her to walk out of that hospital after that incident and have custody of baby Melissa. Well, but you know what, though? At uh, St. Elmo's, whatever treatment they gave her on that day definitely worked because when she leaves the hospital this time, she ends up slashing a woman's face, taking the woman hostage, and demanding that this woman drive her to Kellett's house, her husband Kellett's house, so that she can kill Kellett and Kellett's mother. And this gets better. On the way to kill Kellett and his mother, it occurs to her that there is someone else who is complicit in this horrible turn in her life that has led Kellett to leave her. And that person is Kellett's mechanic. Mechanic who fixed his car and made it possible for him to leave town <laughs> it's all with another woman. Fucking mechanic. <laughs> he fixed my husband's car, and if it weren't for that, he would not have been able to leave. So Catherine and her hostage pull into this service station so that she can kill Kellett's mechanic. While she's there, she ends up uh, getting herself another hostage, a little boy, and she has her knives with her, and she's threatening to cut this little boy. Not surprisingly, the cops get called on her, and this is where we see the Aberdeen Police Force's Hostage negotiation tactics. So, and this is really, you know, the, what they do to, to defuse this situation should probably be taught in police academies all over the world. What they do um, to get this little boy away from her is they start beating Catherine with brooms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this place is just, I mean, what the fuck is going on in Aberdeen? And this doesn't get any better, like, all the way through this. It's just... It so, worked, though, but it was effective. Unlike, yeah. unlike their cutting-edge mental health treatment, yeah. the brooms actually the were brooms effective. The brooms did actually work. <laughs> so, somehow, so maybe don't knock this so much. Yeah, maybe not. You know, Somehow, uh, by beating Catherine with brooms, they managed to save this little boy uh, and get Catherine out of the service station. And she goes back to the mental institution. So, so David Kellett hears that uh, Catherine was en route to murder him. With a hostage in tow, tries to kill his mechanic, takes another hostage, and David's response to this is that he needs to return to Catherine because uh, she's clearly out of sorts and she could use his help. Right. And in the process, has to abandon his pregnant girlfriend in order to get back to his estranged wife. Yes. David Kellett at this time does have a pregnant girlfriend. You really do want to see that sex tape, don't you? I do want to see that sex tape. I mean, like, God damn. 
I mean, that's got to be what it's about. Why the hell else would he go back there? There's nothing else. I'm, anyway, so David Kellett and Catherine somehow make up, and it's around this time that uh, Catherine starts hanging her boning knives above their marital bed. In 1979, they have another baby, but Kellett is finally starting to become a little bit afraid of Catherine. One night, he's coming home from a dart tournament that he was participating in. I'm sure he was drunk. Everybody in the story's drunk. He was late getting home, and because of that, Catherine caved the back of his head in with a frying pan. There's blood everywhere. David Kellett spends a week in the hospital. Yeah, this is no cartoon bump on the head. No. His no, skull this is was a fractured. Serious. Serious injury. Yes, yeah, serious injury with his frying pan. While he's in the hospital, Catherine gets all of his stuff and sets it on fire. Burns all of his stuff. So when he gets home, all he's got is the clothes that he's wearing. He doesn't have any clothes left at the house. Catherine somehow manages to convince Kellett to not press charges over this incident, and he does not. Well, at this point, I mean, let, let's let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt here, right? Mm-hmm. He's got two children with this woman. Mm-hmm. So pressing charges against her is a complication not just for him but also for the kids. So, yeah. I mean, you could make an argument that he's thinking about the family unit as a whole in this situation. So after all of the hostage-taking, uh, attempted murders— Putting babies on train tracks. It's an excellent babysitting service. Catherine finally decides that she is fed up with Kellett's bullshit. She leaves him. She leaves. She leaves him. Him. She was done with his drunk shenanigans. So Catherine and David Kellett get divorced in 1986. And Catherine takes up with a man named Dave Saunders. Dave is a former Speedway driver turned coal miner uh, who apparently spends most of his time either at the local bar or under the hood of a car. Uh, he's really, he really likes his cars, always working on them. During her time with Dave Saunders, Catherine's mother dies. And even though Catherine's mother was seemingly pretty terrible, they had a very close relationship. So in 1986, shortly after Catherine and Saunders get married, they get a phone call saying they need to come to Catherine's parents' house uh, very fast. Her mother's collapsed, and she's sick. So they race over to Catherine's parents' house, where Barbara is in the back of an ambulance. Catherine climbs inside this ambulance to be with her, but it's too late. Barbara is already dead. And this was really traumatic for Catherine. Uh, Apparently, her mother was not um, a good sight to look at at this point. It said that she had all kinds of stuff coming out of her mouth that stank. Uh, And Catherine saw all of this. Catherine flies off into a rage, jumps out of the ambulance, screaming, Uh, Blames all of this on her father, says that it's because of her father and all the violence he perpetrated. uh, That's why Barbara, Catherine's mother, has died. The death of her mother was extremely affecting for Catherine. Immediately after that, she had to be taken to the hospital. 
again, where they gave her some sedatives to settle her down. And after that, this already incredibly volatile woman became even more unstable. This woman who takes hostages, puts babies on train tracks, gets worse. She becomes prone to uh, fits of rage, starts making scenes out in public every time her and Saunders go out. Uh, She becomes paranoid. She's constantly accusing Saunders of fooling around on her, which he may very well have been doing. No one in this this story seems to be particularly constant. No, these (laughs) these are not church folk. Um, No, we don't know that either. (laughs) Yeah, well, not church folk by by U.S. standards. So, Uh, well, actually, they probably are church folk by U.S. standards. Yeah, these people fit the mold. These are Baptists. Uh-oh. So all this rage uh, gets to be too much for Saunders. And he says, uh, fuck this, I'm leaving. And he goes back to where he was living before he got involved with Catherine. But getting away from Catherine Knight isn't especially easy. On the same day that Saunders moves out, Catherine manages to track him down. She spots his car outside of this pub and commences to fucking it up. Starts tearing the windshield wiper blades off of it, beating on it. And this is a guy who's a former race car driver, this right? This is a former so race car driver. he's taking this pretty seriously. Yeah, he's really into his cars. And she's fucking with his ride. Mm. I'm saying fuck too much. You should say fuck more so it doesn't make me seem like I'm saying too much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. All right. Um, After she's done messing up Saunders' car, she shows up at the place where Saunders is staying, acting calm, saying that she just wants to talk about their relationship. Somehow she convinces Saunders to go back to Aberdeen with her. And on the way there, Saunders has this intuition that Catherine might have done something to his car. So he says, I want to go, I want to turn around and I want to go check on my car. Uh, Catherine reluctantly agrees and eventually takes him to his car. And it, of course, turns out that his intuition about this was correct. Saunders, being a gearhead, is not at all happy that she's messed up his ride. They get in a big fight. Catherine somehow again convinces him to come back with her. So he does. When they finally get back to their house in Aberdeen, it's like flipping a switch. Catherine goes berserk. So she's apparently putting on this very calm facade to lure him back in. She gets him back home, flips out, starts screaming at him, accusing him of sleeping around, starts punching him with these big heavy blows. And apparently, uh, according to everyone who has been punched by Catherine, she was quite an accomplished puncher. Okay. She hit like a man is what they say. And, you know, I know that's sexist. I'm just saying what they said. Okay. She hits hard. Why don't we just leave it at that? She hits hard. She hits hard. She hits like a hard-hitting person of either gender. Of any gender. There we go. There we go. All right. I got it. <laughs> We're PC. So she's punching him. He manages to shove her off of him, and she runs into the kitchen and grabs a knife. 
And Saunders is getting prepared to defend himself. He's sure that she's about to come running at him and stab him. But instead, she just walks outside. And for a minute, I mean, you have to imagine that Saunders is feeling kind of relieved that he's not being stabbed to death. But then he goes and takes a look outside. And what he sees outside the door is Catherine standing there holding Saunders' puppy. And she has cut the puppy's throat. So clearly, I think that the baby Melissa train track incident Mm -hmm. is pretty horrific. Mm -hmm. But this is also just pretty awful. Yeah. I mean, I just can't fathom staying with someone who would just slice up a pet. Yeah. It's, It's just horrific. And so she's holding this puppy in her arms, having sliced its throat. It's bleeding out. And Saunders looks out, sees the scene, and watches this puppy die in Catherine's arms. Catherine's recollection of this incident with the puppy is peculiar, to say the least. I went out and cut his dog's throat. Okay. It was a clean cut, they said. It's almost as if she's on a just a completely different wavelength than everyone else about this. It sounds like in her interrogation later on, that she's defending her actions by saying that the incision that she made across the puppy's throat was clean and effective, which is, of course, entirely beside the point. I mean, the points that she killed a puppy because she was angry. So after the incident with Saunders' dog, they somehow managed to work things out. And in June of 1988, they have a baby together. Uh, They have a little girl, and they name it after Catherine's mother, Barbara. They continue to argue and break up and almost immediately get back together. Saunders tries over and over again to get away from her, but Catherine ends up showing up wherever Saunders is, waiting for him to uh, get drunk and feel weak. I'm sorry to bring this up again, but according to Saunders, he said he had never met anybody as wild in bed as her. And somehow he kept falling for it. <laughs> I'm doing this all wrong, aren't I? <laughs> I am too. I can't I mean, keep I, a man. <laughs> <laughs> you need to see the sex tape. <laughs> God, please don't put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally going in. I'll put that in the intro. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> you were listening to Where is the Line? <laughs> I can't keep a man. <laughs> At one point, Catherine hits Saunders in the head with a hot clothes iron. Supposedly after this, you can actually see the imprint of this clothing iron on his face for a long time after that happened. She also stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Saunders ends up in the hospital for three days over this uh, scissor stabbing. So Saunders and his fellow coal miner friends regularly carpooled to work and at at one point these friends of his that he's riding with start making bets on what kind of injuries Saunders is going to show up with on any given day so they're essentially making fun of him on over the fact that his his wife is pretty regularly beating him up and they gave him especially a lot of hell over the uh the clothing iron imprint on his face when that happened and Saunders eventually starts making up stories about these injuries 
one time he actually claimed that he had rolled his car over to explain away some cuts and bruises that he had. And it's typical abused spouse stuff, right? Yeah, and it's when I was reading about this, you know, I was I couldn't help but make myself like feel that you know the iron imprint on the face, like all of this fighting that they're doing. It's not funny, but it was a little bit funny. And then I get down to this point, and then it, it, when it when it when I read that Saunders starts making up stories about these injuries, it's very you know the battered wife who fell down the stairs. You don't have to be a wife to be an abused partner. No, you absolutely don't. And yeah, I, I mean, felt, they're similar stories, right? It is the the falling down the stairs kind of excuse. Yeah, but I started thinking if this was the other way around, if I was reading a story about uh, a woman who had been hit in the face with an iron by her husband, you'd be horrified. Yeah, he's a he's a terrible, terrible human being. And somehow, just because Saunders is a man and it's a woman doing this to him, I did not have that. Did not inspire in me that that level of sympathy that I would normally have for somebody else. But it just was not clicking in my mind. Domestic abuse. In the way that you normally think about it, until I got to this point where I read that Saunders has started lying about how he's getting beat up. I can imagine it was probably pretty upsetting for Saunders to go out in front of his friends and um, know that his wife beats on him like this. Anyway, I guess the, the stabbing and the being branded with a clothing iron was a step too far for Saunders. And he goes, walk about. Australian words. That's what they say. <laughs> walk about. That's a great word. I love it. It is a great word. I'm going to start using it all the time. <laughs> I use it often. <laughs> Next time we take a break, I'm going to say, let's go walk about. Okay. <laughs> so Saunders leaves. And this time he doesn't tell anybody where he's going except for his best friend. And when I say he didn't tell anyone, uh, I'm including in this his own two-year-old daughter. Again, we have a case of a man abandoning a child with Catherine Knight. And of course, Catherine, when she's not able to find Saunders, does something incredibly messed up. And she tells this two-year-old little girl that Saunders, her father, is dead. And not just dead, that he's been murdered. And not just murdered, she tells this girl... That mom killed dad because dad left mom for another woman. So she tells this two-year-old little girl that she murdered the girl's father. And she lets the girl believe this for three months. One day, though, uh, Catherine and this little two-year-old girl are, are driving around in Catherine's car. And the little girl actually spots her father outside the window and starts screaming that she sees her dad. He's not dead. There he is. Catherine uh, kind of reluctantly turns the car around and lets uh, Saunders and his daughter reunite. Now, fortunately for Saunders, during this three-month absence that he managed to pull off, Catherine has moved on and found herself a new beau, John Chillingworth. Yeah, and, and this is, an, at this point, 1990, mm -hmm. and um, they... Meet in a pub, and surprise, surprise. Um, no, I mean he he kind of fits the bill. You know this. She definitely has a type. Mm -hmm. uh, a hard drinking, 
guy who, you know, is a roughneck, likes to party, likes to fight. Um, and the two of them hook up and she quickly becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son spring of 91. I think this relationship followed a similar pattern as to her other relationships. Um, but they're fighting a lot, um, but their arguments didn't regularly progress to physical violence. The two of them have uh, an agreement that there was one knockdown drag out that happened in a car. You know, she punched a couple of his teeth out. He hit her in the face. <laughs> she drove them to the police station. She punched his teeth out? Yeah. And, but she also drove him straight to the police station, and uh, he was arrested and sent to the drunk take for a couple of hours. And by the time he sobers out and leaves the police station, she's gotten a temporary no-contact order. And um, So she punches his teeth out, drives him to the police station to get a restraining order on him. No, she just wants him out of the car, I think. Um, she... They, they were just fighting. They were in the car when the fight started. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he had bought her a new van in another town. And as they were driving back to Aberdeen, this fight breaks out. So instead of going home, she just drove to the police station <laughs> and tells the cops, hey, he hit me in the face. And he was drunk, got mouthy with a cop. So they, they tossed him in, in the drunk tank. Um, but I think outside of, of that incident, they had a contentious relationship, but this is actually one of her more, more mellow romantic <laughs> endeavors. Yeah, I mean, if uh, he got away with just a few missing teeth, he got off light comparatively. I don't even know if they're missing. They might have just been chipped. <clears throat> Who knows? At some point, he decides he's going to get sober for her, and he does. He moves to another town, sets up a home for them, and she agrees, uh, even though she's suspicious, she agrees to come and stay for six weeks at the new house that he set up. And, uh, yeah, he they, that lasted about 10 days, and then she splits. And it, it seems like there's some sort of chase. She makes an excuse to leave the house. He realizes she hasn't come back, and he immediately figures out she's run away. So he follows her in another car, because at this point he actually has a license. He hasn't historically been able to hold on to one because he's been too drunk. So now that he's sober, he can actually follow her. Uh, stops at a couple gas stations and figures out that, you know, she's seen someone else. And that effectively ended their relationship. He found her um, in John Price's home, and uh, she broke his heart. He eventually just kind of gave up and moved out of the state. When she starts seeing John Price, they're, they're getting along great. She moves into his house, like Saunders, he's a coal miner. Like Saunders, like all of her relationships, uh, John Price drinks a lot. She, um, like with most of her relationships, um, she beat on John Price, and it's very possible that John Price beat her back. His nickname for Catherine was his speckled hen. That sounds so quaint. <laughs> it is. <laughs> That sounds like a bar. <laughs> it sounds what? It sounds like a bar. <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to run down to the should... speckled head and grab a few beers. <laughs> it does sound like a bar. That doesn't sound like a bad bar name. No. I hate to bring this up again. Uh, apparently, John Price was really into the sex that they were having. I knew you were going to say that. 
it keeps coming up. So they're getting along great for a while, um, as great as she gets along with anybody. And then one day she finds out that in John Price's will, he's leaving everything to his children and nothing to her. So she demands that Price give her $10,000. He doesn't give her $10,000, which pisses her off. Um, so, so what she does is, at some point, John Price had taken home from work a few first aid kits. Technically, yeah, he stole them. Yeah, he got them out of the trash cans. They were expired first aid kits. Yeah, he took some expired first aid kits home from work. He wasn't supposed to do that. Anyway, so uh, Catherine gets out the video camera and films footage of these expired first aid kits. Sends them to the police and to Price's employer. And Price gets fired. So he's 43 years old and unemployed. Because Catherine's gotten him fired from his job. This is crazy, though. He, he works at this place for 17 years. So for this to be the reason that he got fired, that just seems kind of suspect, doesn't it? Especially in Aberdeen. Right. Like I it, mean, like, people, like... Is there no warning system? I mean, <laughs> just... Well, I mean, like, you're... Stop once, taking stuff out of the trash, you know? I, it doesn't seem like a fireable offense to me. Yeah. It really doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like uh, the priorities in Aberdeen in terms of criminality are really screwed up. Because, I mean, apparently you can get in bar fights, put babies on train tracks, whatever don't, the hell you want to do. Don't you touch those first aid kits that are in the trash bin. Do not touch expired no. first aid kits. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> So after Catherine gets Price fired from his job, he leaves her, and like a, a lot of her previous relationships, Price ends up taking her back for some reason. And at this point, their relationship takes a turn for the worse. Uh, Catherine's beating Price pretty regularly. At one point, she even stabs him. Now, in the interrogation that she had with the police after she ended up murdering Price. She has a very interesting take on how the stabbing actually happened. Yes. Once Price got off the phone, he started on me, and I was around washing up, and I could have been a fork, a spoon, or anything in my hand. It was a knife that cut your meal with, and I aimed it at him, and it got him. He was leaning closer than what I thought. And my eyesight was bad at that time. I've only had new glasses since then. <laughs> her eyesight was bad. It's a combination of factors. It's her eyesight. He was too close. There's a depth perception issue. Yeah, I mean, like, it really doesn't sound anything like Catherine Knight to go and stab somebody. No. You know, obviously. No. Obviously, this, her prescription off happens. It's a little mistake. It, happens, it can happen to anybody. Well, they all keep tripping and putting their dicks in her, so. <laughs> Just happened. Yeah. Again. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've accidentally stabbed somebody in the gut because <laughs> I didn't have my glasses on. Remind me not to get too close to you. Yeah. Price has been pretty tight-lipped about this abuse that he's getting from Catherine, but 
just before he gets murdered, he shows up to work and he, he starts showing his friends some of these scars from stab wounds and various injuries that, he, that he's getting from Catherine. And uh, Price at this point is getting uh, actually pretty afraid and worried. Uh, he's scared for his life, actually. He tries to go take out a restraining order on Catherine, but he finds out that uh, it wouldn't take effect for several days. So he just cans that idea. Yes, yeah, so disappointing. He basically went through every step he could have to actually mm-hmm. try and protect himself from this woman. And Aberdeen failed him. Yeah. So the night that, that Price gets murdered, he goes home, but he he knows that something's going to happen. And and he tells his co-workers, if I'm not back in the morning, it's because Catherine's killed me. While Price is at work telling his friends this, Catherine is out buying what's described as a sexy black nighty to wear when she does what she's planning to do. She leaves the kids with a friend and then waits for Price to get home. And as Price had foreseen, he did not show up at work the next day. And taking his premonition under advisement, um, his co-workers and friends go to check on him. These friends of his and a neighbor go up to the house and they see a little bit of blood on the front door. So they call the cops. And that brings us up to this remarkably grisly crime scene. Catherine, uh, as I've mentioned before, during the interrogation, claimed to have absolutely no memory of what happened here and has never talked about it, at least not to anybody who revealed that information to journalists or police. But the scene itself and the forensic evidence associated with it paints a pretty clear picture of what went on in the house that night. So this attack that Catherine perpetrates on John Price starts off in the bedroom. Price is in all likelihood asleep when Catherine starts stabbing him. In post-coital bliss. Remember, they had sex. Yeah. So at least he got laid before he was skinned, right? Yeah, true. He got laid before he was flayed. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so it's evident that, that this all started uh, in the bedroom because of blood spatter that they found left on the walls and on the bed. Once he starts getting stabbed, Price wakes up and he tries to escape. His blood ends up on a light switch on the wall, which suggested that, that he tried to turn on that bedroom light to better see what was going on. Price actually, uh, after having been stabbed several times, makes it out of the bedroom, down the hallway, and he heads for the front door. And again, blood evidence at the scene suggests that he actually managed to open the front door and get at least part of the way outside before Catherine dragged him back in the house and closed the front door. She drags him back in through this front door, just inside the hallway, and she continues stabbing him. The coroner later said that there were 37 stab wounds that were identifiable on his body, but that number could have very well been much higher than that. Because of the condition that Price's body eventually ended up in, there was really just no way to know for sure how many times he had been stabbed beyond those 37 that they were able to count. Uh, At some point during the stabbing, John Price finally dies. There's a huge pool of blood on the floor that measures about three feet by six feet that indicated where this had happened. 
streaks of blood leading from this giant pool in the hallway suggest that once he was dead, and once Catherine was finally done stabbing him, she dragged his body from the hallway into the living room. And the reason that she did this is uh, seemingly pretty obvious now. She needed more room than the hallway allowed for what she wanted to do with Price's body. So once she gets Price's body into the living room, she starts making several incisions on his corpse, including a cut across the top of his head and down both arms and legs. And then she starts very carefully peeling this skin back and using her knife that she's so proud of to separate the skin from the fat and the muscle wherever that's necessary. And she does this so expertly and so precisely that with just a few very small exceptions, she manages to remove John Price's skin all in one piece. Yeah, she's got mad skills. Yeah. This pelt that, that she's made out of Price's skin includes his face, complete with his nose and ears. She left his genitals attached to the skin. And this was all done so well that actually later on, after Price's post-mortem examination, they were able to sew his skin back onto his body. Once she's finished this business, she hangs this suit of skin up on a hook so that it's hanging in the doorway between the kitchen and the living room. And she starts chopping and preparing some vegetables, zucchini, cabbage, some yellow squash. She gets soup pot out and puts it on the stove. Then she goes back to Price's skinless body and starts working her knife through the tissue and the vertebrae in his neck and decapitates him and tosses this skinless head into the soup pot. Uh, she mixes up some vegetables to throw in there, and she turns the heat on, starts cooking this head. After that, she goes back to the body, rolls it over, and starts cutting steaks out of his buttocks. Uh, she cuts several steaks out. She cooks these up. Uh, when the fat starts cooking away from these steaks, she pours that fat into a coffee cup, which they find on the counter later. One of the stakes ends up in the yard. We're not exactly sure why this one stake ended up in the yard. Some people say that she tried to eat it, didn't like it, threw it out. Some people say she was feeding it to a dog. Who knows? What we do know, though, is right. what? So, something didn't make the cut. <laughs> something didn't make the cut. <laughs> we are not turning this into a pun show. <laughs> Continue with the gory details. I'm almost done with the gory details. I know, details. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I ruined it with my pun. Okay, so back to it. We don't know what her intentions were with the stake that she threw into the yard. What we do know, however, was what her intentions were with two of these stakes. Those she cooked and laid out on a plate along with these vegetables that she's made. Each steak with its own baked potato next to it. She's even prepared some gravy to go along with all this. And next to each plate, she has placed a placard, a little handwritten placeholder. And each one of these has on it written the name of one of Price's two children. So it's her intention that John Price's children come home and actually eat their own father. 
Let me ask you, given the opportunity, if prepared well, would you eat human flesh? I mean, are, are we talking about we're out to dinner, gussied up at a four-star restaurant, or are we talking Donner Party shit? Let's say that uh, there's a special event. You can come in completely legally without any kind of legal repercussions. You can have a very nice meal, wine. Nah. And the main course is consisting of pieces of cooked human. No, I don't think so. I mean, is it organic? Do they know where they source the human? Grain-fed? Yeah. Grain-fed human? Yeah, I think there are too many questions there. Um, So I'm going to have to pass on the fancy dinner. But I would totally eat a dead person if it meant that I might survive. But not for the novelty of it. Nah, nah. That's what we have things like rattlesnakes for. (laughs) I think I would. You would? Yeah. I don't like... I believe that about you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go out of my way to do this. I'm not going to get on some kind of cannibal forum like Armin Muse did and find somebody to eat. I'll tell you this, though. I, I do not agree with the way that Catherine has prepared this. She's turned this into like a... Is it a, the a, vegetable choice that turns you off? Well, it, she's turned this into like a, a soul food kind of meal, you know? Oh, what do you have against soul food? <laughs> I don't have anything against soul food, but I'm thinking like if I'm going to eat a meat as exotic as human... You want something a little more fancy? Yeah. Put like some, real uh, wasabi? Yeah, some wasabi. <laughs> Put some cumin in there. What are other fancy spices? I, I do. I do have an issue with, um, you know, zucchini or squash being in this because it does kind of seem like that really wouldn't hold up during the stewing process. Just kind of mushy. What, in your opinion, pairs well with John Price's flesh? I wouldn't stew anything. Oh, really? You just no. Think it, I would. Just... I would have. I would have uh, made a casserole. Yeah, I think whatever you do, because you've got this exotic cut of meat you don't want to do anything that's going to overpower that oh absolutely compliment is everything as yeah. far as the taste is concerned yeah 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 man you gotta take out that part where we talk about tuscaloosa alabama because these people are gonna hunt us down <laughs> <laughs> we're in so much trouble back to this crime scene so Catherine has ill prepared this meal using meat from john price's buttocks At some point, Catherine goes back to Price's body, what's left of it, and poses it in a very peculiar way. She she sits this uh, headless, skinless corpse upright, crosses its legs, and props the left arm up on an empty lemon-flavored soda bottle. All of this must have been extremely exhausting for her. She takes a shower, pops enough pills to definitely... Not kill her, but maybe enough to make it look like she was trying to kill herself. And then she calls it a day, goes to bed. I'm so jealous of her energy. (laughs) She's super determined. (laughs) (laughs) That is a lot of activity for one evening. I mean, shit, I, I give up halfway through Thanksgiving dinner preparation. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Like, I get tired watching Netflix. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it is impressive that she just was able to complete all of these tasks in such a, a short period of time, and then still fake kill herself. Yeah. 
All right. <laughs> so the next morning, we mentioned this before, that uh, people are suspicious because Price doesn't show up to work. They call the cops. The cops show up, and they see a little bit of blood on the front door, so that gives them reason to actually break into this house. They look through the windows, peek through the windows, and they can see what they think is a curtain hanging between the living room and the kitchen. And they, at the time, don't really think much of it. They go around to the back of the house and actually break in. The first thing that they see is the kitchen. And they said that uh, they smelt a very pleasing aroma, like somebody had just cooked a very nice meal. Uh, They walk into this kitchen. They see a lot of blood around, so they know that something bad's happened. The two officers that are there are uh, Officer Scott Matthews and Officer Furlonger. Poor... Officer Matthews, still believing that this is a curtain hanging between the kitchen and the living room. Apparently, it's a little bit dark in there. Um, he walks up to, uh, to, to this curtain to go and see what's going on in the living room. And uh, he puts his left hand out to brush the curtain aside. And he feels something cold and wet on his arm. And he looks down and realizes that uh, he's got blood all over his arm. And that what he had just touched was the pelt of a human. These poor police officers who had to walk into this crime scene. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're reading about this stuff. We know what happened. We are not there. It's really easy for us to sit here and talk about these things. These folks just, like, went to work, had some coffee, and went out on a call. Yeah. And like, they didn't have a choice. Tickets today. They did not have a choice. <laughs> like I usually do. It's horrifying no. to think that this is like your what you're going to encounter in your day to day job. Yeah, and apparently after this, um, these two cops, other cops that went in, I believe also um, the forensics team that went in, they I'm were sure. all just like "fuck this," and everybody took like a week off of work. And then probably had to go through counseling for. Years after, <laughs> to try to deal with it. No, uh, this is this is Aberdeen, Australia. Man, this is bad even by Aberdeen standards. Come American on, American stuff. These people didn't go to counseling. <laughs> they just took a little time off work. You really think that? Went to the bar. <laughs> I'm sure there drinks, was some hard drinking. There's some hard drinking involved. So after after these two officers discovered this curtain is actually a skin suit, they find prices skinless, headless body. At this point, it starts occurring to them what these stakes on the table might be. And then they see the uh, the pot, the soup pot on the stove. They know that Price's head's gone. They don't see the head anywhere. They know what's probably in the pot, but they pick the lid up anyway, and sure enough, skinless head, eyeballs looking up at them. They're probably pretty sure that, that Catherine is who has done this. She seems like the type. But they don't know where she is at this point. Um, I believe that at one point they hear some snoring in another room, and they go in there and they find Catherine asleep, clean, on the bed. Mm-hmm. So Catherine's taken into custody. Um, the investigation proceeds. And about 18 months later, in October of 2001, We have the original trial. Catherine pleads guilty to the murder charge. And 
then the trial proceeds where you've got both sides giving evidence. And this is where we've got really, really graphic details of this case coming out for the first time. Because initially, when this happened, I think the, the press and the police made a pretty concerted effort to keep most of these gory details under wraps because they were just so horrific. And nobody really wanted to be reading this stuff at the breakfast table. Yeah, too much even for Aberdeen. Right. So, um, you know, we're, we're really getting the first kind of public reading of these details. And... Um, She's pled guilty, so essentially it becomes a trial about her sentence. Mm -hmm. And uh, in November, she is sentenced to life in prison. um, Without the possibility of parole. Without the possibility of parole. And um, again, first time that's ever happened to a woman in Australia. And and here's a, you know, the quote is that this is an appalling crime almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think that everybody involved outside of Catherine herself, you know, felt pretty good about the sentence. And then we have to fast forward to her appeal in 2006, which is, it involves several issues. We've got things like premeditation. We've got her... uh, mental state at the time of the murder. We've got her history. Um, All of these things are are being considered during the appeal. And the appeal, of course, is not not to to see if if she can have this overturned. This is specifically about her sentence. Um, We're talking about life parole, or excuse me, life in prison being appropriate for this crime. But one of the things that I found most interesting about the 2006 appeal is this issue as to whether or not her mutilating the body after John Price was deceased was relevant to the seriousness of the offense. So they actually had to sit around in court and try to figure out whether or not they needed to step back on her life imprisonment sentence because, uh, you know, the guy was already dead. (laughs) So does it really matter that she mutilated the body. Well, after you know, that. I'm I am not a lawyer. In case you thought that I might be. <laughs> but it does actually seem to me that the murder and the desecration of the corpse are two different things. So you have a point where you kill somebody, once they're dead, that's the murder end of that crime. What you do with the corpse after that is something completely different. Is it really, though? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, Well, clearly not one in this district back in 2006. So her appeal was denied. But I think that on this count, they decided that the mutilation of the body after the fact was so intertwined with the actual murder Mm -hmm. that there was no way that they could entertain an appeal on that basis. But I mean, this is not a woman who just moved a body or tried to conceal a murder. Yeah. She served it up for dinner. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is – she wanted people to see what she had done in this case. Yeah, I'm absolutely not arguing that Catherine's sentence is inappropriate in any way. Clearly, she needs to be locked up for good. And she is. And she is. Just living it up in prison? Yep. 
As we speak, Catherine Knight is living inside Silverwater Women's Correctional Center in Western Sydney, where she's known to the other inmates as the Nana. Uh, apparently, she's very popular among the other inmates in the prison. Um, she came there with such a reputation that essentially nobody messed with her when she got there. Uh, everybody had heard what she had done, and she pretty much enters this prison as the top dog. Yeah, I don't think I would fuck with somebody who had skinned no. a paramour. But also, <laughs> I am not, you know, a murderer, drug trafficker, whatever these people are in there for. Um, in any case, um, they are right off the bat intimidated by her. And her behavior in prison is actually very surprising. She is known as the peacekeeper between the inmates. If a fight starts to break out, she breaks it up, gets the inmates to talk to each other, come to some kind of civil discourse, and calm down. Because they're all united against the prison guards. Yes. Her behavior with the prison guards, however, is very different. So in this prison, the, the guards occasionally come in. I guess toss the cell is what they call it. So they come in and just check for contraband and things inside the cells. When they do this, the, the prisoners are supposed to stand outside the cell until the search is complete. Catherine Nye apparently does not adhere to this. She stands inside her cell as it's being searched, screaming at the corrections officers. According to these corrections officers, this is... Completely against protocol, but they feel like it is just too much trouble to deal with dragging her out of the cell. So they let her stand there and scream at them as they search her cell. In Silverwater Women's Correctional Center, Catherine is considered a Category 4 inmate, which is the highest and worst category that a prisoner can be assigned. And as such... She is not allowed access to knives. And that's going to do it for episode two of Where is the Line? If you've managed to make it this far, thank you very much for listening. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and at whereistheline.net. And we'll see you again in two weeks. Bye, y'all. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look under your bed.